And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Rick Wurtzman. Rick Wurtzman is the executive director of the Drucker Institute, a social enterprise based at Claremont Graduate University. Its mission is to strengthen society by making people more effective, organizations more responsible, and work more joyful. Rick is also a best-selling author and a regular contributor to Forbes.com. Previously, he spent two decades as a reporter, editor, and columnist for the Wall Street Journal and the Los Angeles Times. Please give a warm welcome to Rick Wurtzman. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks. I think we're in for, I know we're in, because I've spent the last couple of days with Mort, and um, I know we're in for a real treat hearing from him. I think I'd be remiss, though, if we didn't just for a second acknowledge what happened in Boston today. Um, and uh, I know you all join me in our thoughts and prayers going out to all the families um, affected there. Um, so I, it was my great pleasure and really an honor to, uh, to introduce Mort Mandel to you. And, and then we'll, we're going to talk for a little bit and then open it up to all of you um, and uh, let you get in your questions and, and thoughts. And you'll be able to engage with Mort directly yourselves. Um, so what can I tell you about Mort? He started um, an auto parts distributor business with his two brothers in 1940. Um, they scraped together $900 and uh, essentially bought out their uncle's uh, business as their uncle moved on to Chicago. 900 bucks was what they could raise, and their uncle said, okay, it's enough. 56 years later, they sold that company, Premier Industrial Corporation, for nearly $3 billion. Um, in between, uh, they were listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 1960. Um, for 34 of the next 36 years, they posted record profits. Um, it's no wonder, given all that, that Peter Drucker, um, the namesake of my institution, once when asked uh, who were the CEOs he admired most, um, named three people. He named Jack Welch of General Electric, Andy Grove of Intel, and this gentleman right here, Mort Mandel. Um, but in a lot of ways, I think Mort's experience and um, really transcends what, with all due respect to Messrs. Uh, Welch and Grove, what they achieved. And that's really because Mort's walked in two worlds. Not only did he have such incredible success in the business world, but he's also been a longtime leader in the social sector. Um, he and his brothers started a charitable foundation in 1953. Um, and that has grown, um, as their business success um, grew, that has grown. And it is a major, major funder and partner, an intellectual partner, um, helping with various causes, including uh, inner city uh, renewal uh, and Jewish education all over the world. Um, so Mort has a lot. I've learned a lot from him in the last couple of days and in some prior meetings I've been lucky enough to have with him. Um, he has a lot of wisdom and... Uh, we're going to see what he can share with us now. So, Mort, with that, I, you're probably blushing by now, but I will no, we'll welcome you. So. No, thank you for that. Uh, it was a little short, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, it's a pleasure for me and a privilege to be here to share uh, whatever I've learned with you. Uh, you'll decide whether it's wisdom. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I'm interested, uh, frankly, in what you're probably interested by being here, uh, interested in by being here, because I know what this group does and I know who it appeals to, uh, so I'm generalizing what all of you are like. 
I care too. I care also. I care about a better world. <clears throat> and the only other thing I'll say by way of introduction is my brothers and I achieved uh, financial success way beyond we ever dreamed we would have or even want. And so what that's enabled us to do is to take three Mandel brothers, all billionaires, the same business, same process, to take, I'm going to say, the vast majority, so I won't tell you the percentage, but it's very high, leaving enough for us to live in a style we never thought we would be able to, and form a foundation <clears throat> which uh, does a lot of good things. Uh, and the last number I'm going to give you, to give you some proportion, uh, we have 111 staff members in our foundation. So as foundations go, that's, that's a large staff. Uh, because we care a lot. Uh, and, and, and one of the expressions I don't even like, but I'm going to use, we care about giving back. So, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> not going to let you get off that easy. You're on. So, great. So, as noted, I think, in the introduction um, to us coming out here, um, part of the subtitle of your book is uh, Essential Advice from a Self-Made Leader. So, let's begin. I'm curious how you define leadership and... Is leadership different than management? <clears throat> They're used interchangeably by people who mean the same thing most of the time. But they're different. So one of the definitions, kind of cute, but one of the definitions that's out, I think this has been ascribed to Peter Drucker, but I'm not sure, <clears throat> is that management is concerned with doing things right. Leadership is doing the right things. It's kind of cute, but when you think about it, you know, there's a, there's a clear distinction. <clears throat> and leaders, uh, the, the most successful leaders in for-profit, non-for-profit, the Winston Churchills, the Martin Luther Kings, uh, the Jack Welch in business, uh, Welch's, whatever, uh, generally are conceptual thinkers. They uh, are constantly thinking about strategic issues, not just making the trains run on time, but strategic issues. And they're able to build, leaders are able to build a team. Leaders are, leaders are able to build a high achieving, <laughs> high achieving team, teams. <clears throat> and uh, lastly, uh, they're able to retain the high achievers, who are very mobile. There are too few high achievers. I call them in my book A's, B's, and C's. It's an oversimplification, but it enables us to communicate. So the supply of A's is too small, and business is fighting for them, academia is fighting for them, government is fighting for them. Everybody's fighting for this too small supply. But the A's uh, make the difference. So tell, tell me about those A's. What, what does an A player look like? How can you tell an A from a really a B plus? Yeah. 
Well, you can't tell an A minus from a B plus. I mean, it's not that sensitive. But you can tell an A from, uh, you know, uh, in my, my world, a C, let's say, and probably also uh, 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 guessing, because it's not precise, what a B is. <clears throat> and uh, A's, uh, you know, I think I've, I've probably given you most of the answer. Uh, A's have certain qualities. Uh, charisma is usually one of them. They're charismatic. They're uh, generally good speakers. They're articulate. They're obviously intelligent. <clears throat> uh, so I'm going to quit there. So you, you actually, in your book, you actually you enumerate five attributes I do. that you say you look for when you hire people. And, I do. And, and I'll... I'll tell the audience what they are, and, and I found this fascinating. So you actually say these are, these are the attributes and this is the rank order that, that they are from most important yep. to least. Yep. So you say intellectual firepower, number one. Yep. Values, two. Passion, three. Work ethic, number four. And then experience, last. last. Right. Why, why that order? Why start with intellectual firepower and why experience <clears throat> last? Well, <clears throat> oversimplification, but this answer, I think, will work. We can teach people how to do almost anything. We can't do anything about intellectual. We can't do anything about the size of their brain. We can't do anything about their values. By the time a person is how old? I mean, it's somewhere between 8 and 18. They're who they will always be. Uh, they reflect probably more than anything else their parents. So, <clears throat> intellectual firepower, we can't do anything about. Values, we can't do anything about. Passion, you can light the fire a little bit, but can't do much about that. Work ethic, we can't do much about that. Experience, anybody who has the first four, we can do anything with them. We can make them dentists, we can make them surgeons, we can make them who knows what. So, <clears throat> you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit to make a point, but uh, we're very clear. We're very clear on the sequence. Uh, and in any organization, for-profit, not-for-profit, that I have anything to do with, and it's, it's been a large number, actually, uh, we see hiring as a major happening, as a uh, something that will determine the future. I mean, I may be overdoing it a little bit, but something that will really determine who we are, who we will be. Hiring is major. And the second major, you didn't ask me this, but I'll throw it in, is who you promote. Who among your competent people do you promote? Those are, the, those are some of, maybe, I think, the very important uh, determinants of the future of an organization. You, you were telling me that that lesson on experience being the least important and the other qualities being the most important um, was something Peter Drucker actually hammered home for you and, and you were sort of having an intellectual joust with yeah. him and pushing yeah. him. Can you yeah. t tell about that story and, then, um, and what you then did with it with the guy you mentioned to me, the accountant? Yeah, I want to apologize for having coffee here when you don't have any. Uh, but it's my throat, and this is enabling me to hopefully function. Uh, so one day, I had the good fortune 
of spending a day a month for two years in the 60s with Peter Drucker, who I was a paid, I was a client of this man, person who was doing management consulting. And it was a transformative experience for me, which is why I'm really out here uh, and accepted this invitation. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, to be spend a day with uh, with uh, Rick at the Drucker Institute, Claremont University, Claremont Graduate School. <clears throat> so one day I said, Peter, how can we grow our company, which was called Premier Industrial Corp. How can we grow Premier at a faster rate? He said, uh, put your best person with your biggest opportunity. I said, Peter, this is in my book, Peter, I'll never forget what I'm going to tell you now. Peter, if my best person is a dentist, and we own a brass foundry, which we did own a brass foundry at that time, you mean we would put the dentist in charge of the brass foundry if we thought that was our biggest opportunity? We would put the dentist in charge of the brass foundry? He said, absolutely. I said, well, how... How's this dentist going to run a brass foundry? He says, Mort, I'll tell you what he's going to do. He's going <clears> to <throat> come there on his first day and meet the top people and walk around and say hello to everybody. And then he's going to say to somebody, take me on a tour of the factory. I want to see the brass foundry. And four hours later, he's going to come back to his office, understanding, because he's bright by definition, <laughs> understanding there's no way he can run that brass foundry. He's going to quickly come to that conclusion. So what is he going to do? He's going to interview and get to understand everybody who's working there now and see if there is someone who can be his deputy in charge of the factory, or he's going to go out and recruit the best brass foundry person in America. He says, Mort, trust me, Peter, to me. That's what he's going to do. <clears throat> uh, I bought it, partly because it was coming from this guru. I bought it, and it's, uh, I've done it uh, all my career. This was 1965. This is 2013. I've done it, I don't know, six times, five times, seven times, without the first failure. Because this person was everything, you know, in, in, in whatever that means and came to that conclusion. In some of the cases, as I think back about it, this person was able to handle it. In other cases, uh, they weren't, but yeah. So, so who, was your, who was the closest you got to putting a dentist in the brass foundry? In other words, what was the weirdest match of somebody by job title had no business being in a we job? We put a superstar <clears throat> who, was a, who came to us from a major accounting firm into our financial department who had just everything. <clears throat> and uh, we actually did it twice. We did it with this person, and we did it with another woman who, it's the same story, who uh, <clears throat> never ran. This was a non-manufacturing distribution division. But it was, it was planning, organizing, uh, everything. And uh, leadership, communicating. And this person had never done that. And uh, we put him through, you know, a very short orientation program. 
And uh, I think that's the biggest stretch we ever made. I'm not sure I'm communicating to all of you, but that was the biggest stretch we ever made. So all organizations, of course, say people are our most important asset. They all think they're spend a lot of time on hiring and promoting and that HR is a really big focus. But most organizations are not filled with A's, and we know this because there's so many that are not very effective at what they do. So are they fibbing? Are they self-delusional? They, are they settling on B's and C's, but they're confused? What, why, why aren't they doing this only A's thing and really living by it? They, they maybe think they are. Well, maybe I need to uh, clarify something. Uh, no organization I've been associated with ever had all A's. It's just not possible. What we tried to avoid were, B, were C's. We needed B's. B's are necessary. B's are wonderful. B's are, without B's, we're finished. B's are good. They're not great. <laughs> but they're good. So, uh, why we were able to do as well as we did. We were in 16 different businesses. We sort of had a conglomerate, <clears throat> four of whom we started and 12 companies we acquired. And I've done this in the nonprofit world as well. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, why we were as successful as we were, we were the most profitable company in 12 in the world, as nearly as we can measure it. Hmm. Uh, so that's not maybe 100% accurate, but it's notional, in 12 of the 16. And it's because we had more A's than our competition. So I don't even know the percentage. But uh, if you ask me a question later, I'll tell you what I would do if I could do it all over again. Uh, and then the rest of the job were B's. We treasured our B's. It was the C's that hurt us. It was the C's that were a drag. You, bees are necessary. Bees are wonderful. Bees are important. So I have to be careful. A's and B's are yes. C's are definitely, 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 for sure, no. And there are lots of C's. And there are lots of C's hanging on. And in, in, in most institutions, the C's hang on because it's painful to terminate people. So I have a great question for you. What would you do if you could do it all over again? <laughs> that was a perfect setup. Yeah. <clears throat> we had uh, actually 1,500 people in management. And we really were serious about identifying C's. Uh, what I would do over again, and I, it really came to me in writing this book, Writing this book was a wonderful uh, exercise for me personally because it made me think through some things and I said, whoa, uh, on the thing I'm going to tell you now, point I'm going to make now, I really should have done something that I didn't do sufficiently. So I'm going to say of our 1,500 managers, we had 150 that were really in key, key positions. And I'm going to say of those 150, we had 50 or 60 A's. So you, you, one might ask, why didn't we have 150 of the 50 or 60? Okay, you can ask that question. Because there aren't enough A's. But, so here's my answer to what I would do differently. 
I would have put more time, more resources into finding more ease. We would have been bigger and more successful. So it isn't that I'm trying to teach tonight, but I am sharing that if you are involved in any way, or if you know anyone involved in any way, a, a, a trustee or a director or a, an owner or a leader of an institution, for-profit or non-profit, and if you're really trying to serve your clients, and if serving your clients is your primary mission, then you need to ask yourself, or you need to advise others to ask themselves, Take everybody who's on your roster, on your payroll, and let's say it's a home for the aged or uh, the United Way or any nonprofit or a for-profit institution, organization, it doesn't matter. Are there any people working for you that you wouldn't hire with what you know about them now? Almost everybody will say, well, yeah, if Jenny weren't working here, but she's been here 11 years. She's done her best. I'd say, so let me ask you again. Would you hire Jenny with what you know about her now? No, I never would hire Jenny with what I know her, but I can't fire her. So I say, okay, so who are your clients? Is Jenny a client? Or are your clients the kids you're supposed to be working with? Or are your clients the companies you're selling your product to? Who are your clients? So is it more important to serve your clients or to be nice to Jenny? Well, I need to do both. Well, okay, that's great. But if you can't do both. So sometimes that gets across. And look, I want to be a good person. I don't want to, I hate firing people. I do it, I've done it, terminating them. And we always do it because we feel so guilty in a very generous way. So I mean, that's sort of an aside. <clears throat> but. The mission of people who lead any organization, for-profit or not-for-profit, really is to do the best they can for their clients. And therefore, they should get as many A's as they can get and have no C's. And so that's, that's the goal. It's not easy. And no one ever said leadership was easy. But <clears throat> most of the people I know, so this I'm generalizing, People who run major institutions, for-profit and not-profit, don't get it the way I get it, most. Uh, one of the names uh, that uh, Rick just mentioned was Jack Welch of General Electric. He gets it. And there are others. There are many others. But even if you take Fortune's 500 companies, the Fortune 500 are the largest companies in America, or in the world, but in America, and if you take the top 50 nonprofit organizations, and if you take academia, boards don't get it the way I think they should. I'm generalizing. Obviously, that's not 100%. Some people get it maybe much more thoughtfully, intelligently than I do. I doubt it. <laughs> but, uh, so, Mort, I'm going to push you on Jack Welch a little bit. Okay. So I know you admire him. and and. I do. Uh, and uh, so and he clearly did get it, but some would say he, he took it to an extreme. So he put a system into General Electric called different things over the years. One was the vitality curve, or known as forced rankings. 
So there, you know, I'm the manager and I've got my team of 10 people and I've got to rate everybody. So I always have C's. Even if I think, God, I've really gotten my team and they're all A's or they're mostly A's and they're a few B's and I need the B's. I had to identify some, the bottom 10%, and they would automatically get flushed out. So the vitality curve at General Electric to the insiders became known as dead man's curve, right? This was not popular in all circles. Is that pushing it too far, or do you like that system? That is pushing it too far, and I don't like that system. Do you want any more? Nope. <laughs> Very clear. That's good. One more question about bees before I move on, which is, are bees forever bees, or can bees become A's, and how can management lift a strong B into being an A? Is yeah. that possible? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's possible. How do you do uh, that? Uh, well, it depends on the person. So I can't generalize on that. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, but uh, you know, there's nothing precise about my use of A's, B's, and C's. It's sort of general. Uh, can C's become a B? Maybe. Can C's become an A? Maybe. In my experience, C's are C's and they stay C's. B's are B's and they stay B's. A's, and a A's are A's and they stay A's. But uh, I'm sure, even in my own experience, if I thought about it, there are some people who were turned on fire by a boss that they worked for. An interesting uh, statistic, which I didn't put in my book, but I, had I thought of it, maybe I would have. It came from General Electric. And here's something for uh, those of you to, who are in, in a situation that might somehow connect to what I'm going to tell you. Something else I've never forgotten <clears throat> was a study done by General Electric in the 80s. They, uh, by, at that time, I'm, I'm going to guess, employed 250,000 or 300,000 people. And they picked the 50 people who had the fastest track, fastest growth in General Electric. They wanted to know why these 50 people grew as fast, went up the ladder as fast, as quickly as they did. And here's what they found. Uh, they found that people would say, well, <clears throat> something just happened to me when I worked at the uh, aircraft engine plant in Cincinnati working for John Smith. Something happened to me in those three years, or Mary Jones, or whatever. And they found that was a common thread, that, that of the people who went the fastest, uh, what happened to them was they worked for the right person. It, the chemistry was right between the, the, the person who experienced growth and their boss. So I think there are Bs who, if they worked for the right person, might become As. There are Cs, perhaps, who, if they worked for the right person, might become Bs. So that's part of the answer. So I think the answer, the, the answer to your question is yes, it happens. I think not often. So you touched on this, the, the importance of kind of customer service and, and figuring out what the customer needs and pleasing the customer. In your book you write, superior customer service applies to all organizations that serve people, whether they're hospitals, nonprofits, or multinational corporations. As we all know, you add, customer-focused organizations are unfortunately all too rare. So it seems so commonsensical, especially with a Drucker orientation, right? What is the customer value? How can you fill the customer's need? That's the place you start. That's the purpose of a business. Yeah. So why do so many organizations stink at this? Okay, so let me say that the two levers that I think are available to all organizations, 
those in which many of you might be active, and certainly my experience. One is focus on getting as strong a, a, an organization as, as you can. That's the A, B, and C. I think that's the strongest lever of change. If, if you want to do good uh, in, in either a for-profit or a not-for-profit not, not organization, that's first. Second is to have a deep, very deep commitment to superior customer slash client service. And then define what that means. Don't just use the expression. You know, let's give superior service to our clients. Let's give superior service to our customers. Define it. Get to a chalkboard and write one, two, three, four, five. That's what superior service means in our organization. Then measure each one of those criteria. And in most cases, you won't like what you see. In some cases, you might, might be wonderful. We made our money vastly more than we should have. I'm glad we did. Uh, because we understood the power of trying in every way possible to recruit A's and retain them, and the power of superior execution. I'm telling you the truth, I'm not sure which is more, uh, more of a contributor to the success of any institution. I think it is the ABC, but it doesn't matter. You know, quantify one at 55 and the other at 45. But those two levers, uh, you know, to me, are so clear to me, and yet, just think of your own experience, shopping, or working, wherever, you know, or whatever, and <clears throat> uh, it's pretty rare to find superior customer service. I'll tell you who did it with cars. I drive a Lexus, and I was driving a Ford station wagon. Uh, and I got tired of the Ford station wagon because I was having trouble with my headlights. Some silly story, maybe. But I got off the airplane uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, one Saturday night, and I went to a Lexus dealer. I'd never been to a Lexus dealer, Toyota Lexus dealer. I was stunned by the customer service. Stunned. The dealer I bought the Ford from, I knew pretty well. This was my third Ford or something. Ford wagon. I don't think they make them anymore. I was stunned by the superior, by the customer service, and I still am. I've had the car four years, and they come and come to my office. They pick up the car. They take it back. If I want a loaner, they give me a loaner. They don't charge me. They treat me like uh, royalty. All their customers. Anybody here drive a Lexus or a Toyota? Am I right? What's so secret? What's so, what's so hard? Of, well, you know, what, what is there that every car dealer doesn't do it? I think some of the American car dealers are getting into it. So that's an example that I, I use about superior customer service. That made us, absolutely made us, those two things, because we were in this, we were, we were in a business where superior service meant a whole lot. Well, maybe it means something, it means a whole lot in all businesses, but... And I've got examples in my book of instances where we 
quote, dazzled, end quote, our customers. We had the expression in uh, Premier, we have to kill ourselves for our customers. Not literally, but, but people got it. <laughs> and uh, we had 724. I mean, a customer could call our number to be answered 365 days a year by someone who could do something. They might be at home. They might be uh, driving in their car. But somebody answered the phone. Uh, and we had this commitment, and uh, it enabled us to get our price. People will pay for something where they perceive value. I'm giving you a lot more than you probably want for these answers. This is great. Smart, what did you learn in business that made you a better nonprofit leader? And then vice versa, I'm curious, what did you learn oh. in the nonprofit world that yeah. made you better in business? <clears throat> okay, I brought. I brought classic uh, organization skills, I'm going to say business skills, but they're really organizational skills, to the nonprofits. That wasn't so unique. What was unique is I learned so much from the, I don't know if it was unique, but it, it was for me. I learned so much in the nonprofit world that I brought into the for profit world. I'll give you one example. There's no question that my experience, I had a number of leadership jobs chief volunteer officer, president, or what, chairman uh, in, in nonprofits, some with national organizations, some with local organizations. So I had a lot of exposure. I'll give you one example that changed me. So <clears throat> this was many years ago. I think I was about 35 years old. I became chairman. I worked in a United Way division. This was in Cleveland, Ohio. United Way, do you all know what the United Way is? Okay, I worked in the United Way division soliciting small business, because we were a small business when I was 35. And uh, one day uh, they asked me, because I'd been on a, that group for three, four years, would you like to be chairman? I said, sure. So I said to the then, then chairman, uh, John, uh, uh, George Baldwin. John is sitting right over there. George Baldwin. John is my writer, John is my co-producer. John, hold up your hand. <laughs> my book is as good as it is if you think it's good because of that gentleman right there. <clears throat> and uh, I said to George Baldwin, uh, George, would you come to my first meeting and just sit there and after the first meeting give me a critique? Because I really admired this guy. He was a lot older than I was. And I said, sure. So we had this first meeting. It was a fabulous meeting, I will tell you. By the minutes of that meeting were just great. We did a lot of good things. So the meeting's over, and I say to George, uh, George, how'd I do? He said, you know, Mort, that was a wonderful meeting. And those conclusions, great. But he said, it would have been nice if when the group left, they felt that some of the credits, some of the ideas were theirs. You did all the talking. <laughs> and their heads nodded, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was good. But all of the, you dominated the group instead of chairing the group. That hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was then the CEO of Premier Industrial Corporation at a pretty tender age. 
And there's a lot I didn't know, believe me. And this was one of them. And I realized that I was dominating every meeting I chaired. And with the guys who worked for us, I mean, they'd sit there nodding their heads. Uh, but in the, in the uh, non-profit world, the people sitting around the table didn't have to take it, didn't have to like it. Uh, and I realized that I should change the way I chair meetings at Premier, and I did. And I will tell you that I was 35 years old, and believe, me, believe it, I'm, I'm past retirement age, <laughs> as you define retirement, not as I define retirement, uh, as the world defines retirement. <clears throat> and that changed me. That was a transformative experience. I learned a big lesson, and it made me a more, 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 more decent uh, colleague of, of my subordinates at Premier. That's just one of the many things I learned. And uh, so I'll stop there. So one of the biggest problems, at least as I see it with kind of corporate culture now is, and been for maybe the last 30 years, is this incredible preoccupation with short-term results. People managing to hit some quarterly earnings target down to the penny or living and dying by a daily stock price. So. You manage, as I said, to have record earnings in 34 of 36 years as a publicly traded company, but clearly, based on your longevity and sustainability, you were not focused just on the short term. You were clearly also focused on the long term. And you never, by the way, those earnings were never the result of any kind of financial gimmickry. It was real growth. So how can the business world now, first of all, is there any hope of ending kind of this managerial myopia, this short-termitis that we're so afflicted with, such a cause of the financial crisis. Is there any hope to end it? And if so, what, how, can you, how can we begin to change corporate culture to end it? Yeah. Uh, Rick, I'm not sure I, I, I can deal with that question. <clears throat> I'm very discouraged myself at the power of the, that management has given to the financial uh, analysts. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the way they're compensated. I would change the compensation overnight. Not to underpay executives, but not tying their future to uh, their earnings report in the next quarter, if any of you follow that business, or not tying their bonus to uh, their earnings reports, not tying their bonus to the price of their stock. <clears throat> uh, maybe that should be a component. You know, I don't have the answer. Uh, because we never did it. Uh, we did it, we were pretty secure. My brothers and I owned 66% of Premier Industrial. We couldn't be fired. We didn't have the problem of keeping our job. So I'm not sure that, you know, all, all situations are, are equal. Uh, people have to keep their jobs, and if that's what their board wants, you know, they're, they're trapped. But I think it's a sickness. I think it's a, it's a disease, uh, I think it's hurtful, and a uh, strong letter follows. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, can, you, can you talk a little bit, it's, I think probably the, to me was the most wrenching part of your book was after you sold Premier to Farnell, this British outfit in 1996, yeah. this institution, this, this 
company you and your brothers had built fell victim to this very thing that we're talking about. Can you just, it's in the book, just talk a little bit about what happened there and the agreement you thought you had and what, what wound up happening? Because it also relates to the firing of a bunch of A's. So can you, can you tell that story? Uh, yeah, let me say a few things by way of providing context. I think it's an interesting question. I don't like the question, but it's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, John Byrne, who helped me write the book, actually did the writing, which I edited carefully. Right, John? <laughs> <clears throat> and several other advisors wanted me to put the chapter in. I, I wanted it out. It was a painful part of my life. I've spent much of my adult life uh, either practicing or sharing my thoughts about how, cult how important culture was in a merger and how, how many mergers failed to satisfy the participants in the merger uh, because of different reasons the one that I feel is the most common is the failure to understand the different cultures of the two companies that were put together the uh, the the management consultants and the and the and the uh, auditors all found all the reasons why structurally mergers should work but the people part is where many of them messed up. That's conventional wisdom. I didn't invent that, but I believe statistically something like one-third of the mergers are, are, are meet expectations, uh, one-third of the mergers are failures, and the middle third, you know, it's okay, but not what they expected, something like that. <clears throat> so that's one point. Another point about me personally and my brothers uh, is that I grew up in a home where uh, your word was your bond. I'll tell you about the first time we ever borrowed money. Uh, 22 years after we started our money, our business, we went after our first bank loan. We operated on a shoestring when we started. We never borrowed any money. We just, we didn't have credit cards. Uh, so we just saved up and paid for what we wanted personally, and if we wanted to expand our business, we saved up and paid for what we wanted to do to expand our business. <clears throat> so our first loan was our second acquisition. Our first acquisition was the year we went public. We used our stock. It's the only time we used stock for an acquisition. Second acquisition was two years later, J.I. Holcomb Company, and uh, we needed $15 million. So I went to the local bank, which was run by a gentleman with whom I was very friendly in the community. We both worked together in the community, and I know him by his first name. He knew me by mine. He was a little older than me, considerably older. George Herzog. Uh, and uh, I said, uh, I called him up. I said, I'd like to see you, George. He said, absolutely, come in. You know, we sort of knew each other had a nice relationship. So I said, George, uh, we want to acquire this company. We want to borrow $15 million. He said, sit down. And he said, uh, uh, $15 million? I said, yeah. He said, okay. And he took a piece of scratch paper and he scribbled a few notes. He was not, he had a chief lending officer, but he, he dealt with me because he knew me. Uh, and he said, okay, you should have a, uh, 
three-year revolver and a five-year term loan. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. Uh, I didn't myself at that time. I said, fine. And he said, I will charge you about so-and-so interest rate. I said, okay. So he says, that's good. Let me know when you're ready. I said, George, you're not asking me anything about our balance sheet. You're not asking me anything about the numbers. Don't you want to? He said, no, Marty. He says, I don't loan money to companies. I loan money to people. Boy, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Not only made me feel good, I learned something. I learned a lot. So my handshake was my bond. I knew everybody wasn't like that. But nonetheless, so now we get into the merger. Honestly, believe me, made in heaven. They were a company we had a file that thick on because we had acquisite companies we might want to acquire someday. We were a company they wanted to acquire. Uh, they contacted us. I was 76 years old. And we had decided that uh, not leaving the, the company to our family, because we owned the majority, uh, not giving them the responsibility, none of them were involved in our business, not giving them the responsibility to manage this animal, uh, <clears throat> this living organism, rather. <laughs> uh, so a sale was okay. They offered to let us merge, uh, let us buy, to, to then buy us, whatever we wanted, because we were bigger than they were. We ended up <clears throat> deciding that the best strategy was for them to acquire us, and of course they were thrilled. So near the end, after we worked everything out price, and we got a very full price, which otherwise we wouldn't have done it, uh, a couple months before the merger was official, I met with the CEO who, they had offered me the chance to be CEO, but for age reasons, I said no. And so this guy was gonna be the CEO. And we spent, uh, I'm gonna say 50 hours together uh, in London, in New York, uh, in London and in New York. And what we agreed to do was write down the principles which would govern us after the merger in order to deal with culture. <clears throat> and uh, one of them was that uh, of our top 150 managers, 60 of them would be put on a list, and I would decide who the 60 were, that he would not be able to terminate for six months and then after six months, for another six months, would need my okay. Because the most precious asset we had were our A's. And what he was buying, he didn't know it, what they were buying were our A's. That's an oversimplification, but in our image and our reputation and so on. So we decided not to keep that oral or verbal, we wrote it down. And we each signed a copy for the other. So I had his signature in this agreement. Uh, roughly two weeks before the deadline, before the merger was gonna be announced, all the work was done and so on and so forth, he came to me and said, listen, I can't keep my promise. I said, pardon me? 
So am I getting pretty dramatic here? Pardon me. Uh, anyway, so now I'm going to fast forward. Uh, he did not keep his promise, and we had to make the decision two weeks before the merger was worldwide. Everybody knew about it. Uh, we decided we had we had two terrible alternatives, and we decided to go ahead with the merger because uh, all of the stock options, which our top people had lots of, uh, they bought out, and there were 56 people beside Jack John Mort who would be millionaires. Uh, and, and these were most of the top, many of the top 60. Uh, so we went ahead with the merger uh, painfully. And I went on as, uh, <clears throat> at their request, I became uh, deputy chairman for five years. Uh, and I, and uh, I led the charge to terminate Howard Polson. And nine months after the merger, he was gone. So I've, I left a lot out, but... Uh, well, I think the one, the one bit of context I would add is the reason he wanted to fire those people yeah, as well I, as others okay. was because of the pressure he was getting. I left that out. Yeah. You're absolutely right. What happened was, the, uh, <clears throat> what I learned about uh, uh, financial analysts is the following. In Cleveland, I thought they were terrible. They were sweethearts in Cleveland until <laughs> I got to New York. When we went on the New York Stock Exchange in 1964, uh, I was interviewed and met with financial analysts who were more worldwide prominent and so on. I thought, my God, these are ugly. Then when I got to, to England, I found out the real masters of ugly <laughs> were the... Uh, were the so they, the press put this guy under excruciating pressure because uh, they uh, thought we, they paid too much. And uh, he caved. Instead of standing up and justifying their action, he caved. And uh, 60, uh, not 60, 34 of the 60 were terminated two weeks after the merger. 34. And who were they? Now, you want to hear stupid? Here's the definition of stupid. Our most expensive people were terminated. Now, who were our most expensive people? They made the most money for us. Biggest return on investment. Our jewels. Dumb, stupid. Yeah, he lost his job anyway. He was there nine months. Morton Mandel was chairman of the effort to get this guy out. I got the board together and my charm and everything. <laughs> so that's a sad story. It's painful for me to relate it to you. I'm relating it to you because uh, if uh, you enter into an agreement with somebody, get it notarized, triplicate copies, all the other stuff. I didn't do that. Well, I've got some more, but I'm, we're going to open it up to you all. Hi, I'm Erwin Jankovic. Um, when you had an A player that you had a lot of confidence in and you discovered they weren't running their organization or there was some issue in their organization, what kind of advice did you give them or coaching did you give them to help them address whatever was going on in their organization? I don't know if I can generalize. It depends on what the situation was. Uh, we terminated, in our, my experience, two A's all these years. Uh, generally, more than any other reason for arrogance, typically, we were able to counsel the A, because the person is an A, 
they have the mental capacity, they have the self-confidence to say, yeah, you know, I could learn. Uh, so I'm sure that happened. I can't think of a specific example, but I'm sure that happened. But I can tell you that two times I had to terminate an A out of all these years. So we were able to deal with that generally. But that's not a specific answer. But yes, that's a good question. How would you define leadership in philanthropy? Because you're a philanthropist and love to know. Right. I mean, if all of you were trustees of our, our, our workers, staff workers in, in, in a philanthropic organization, my message is almost the same. Uh, I can tell you that uh, having as many A's as possible, delivering superior service to clients, it's the same. I, I've been in both areas. I've played in both areas since I was 27 years old. <clears throat> and I've been a worker, not just a donor, but a worker. Uh, and I see many more similarities than I do differences. You keep score differently. One, how much money are you making? What's the return on investment? That's for profit. The other, how many lives are you changing? How many people are you helping? Are you improving the quality of life or whatever? But short of that, I find them both very much the same. And I think that's something not, that a lot of people don't agree with me on. But that's my experience. I've met a fair amount of uh, fairly intelligent and charismatic people in my life. And I'm not sure that those qualities have always necessarily correlated to having them having been people that I've liked. Um, <laughs> I see businesses emphasizing intelligence particularly a lot and who they, who they pick and, you know, pulling after these, the very the elite, the A players and so on. Are we in danger with that emphasis of starting to build a society or a culture where your worth as a human being is related to your level of intelligence? And if you're not intelligent enough, whatever that might mean, then maybe you're not supposed to, your, your thoughts are not worth as much on certain things, like even outside of business, like politics or ethics or other things like that? Your question concerns me, obviously, when I read about Washington and things like that in politics. So I'm going to stay away from politics. <clears throat> My list of criteria, to be an A, you have to have the brain power, yes. What was second? I don't know if you remember my second values. What kind of, what do I mean by values? Respect, generosity, decency, courtesy, uh, just really the best of Western civilization. You have to be that kind of person to be an A. I mean, the example you gave, those people are not A's. And the third thing and the fourth thing, the last is experience. The first is intelligence, absolutely. If a person that, I, that I'm talking with, or that we're talking with, doesn't pass that, we throw, we, we've, we're finished. Then they have to pass the second values. Much easier, much harder to, 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 to be sure about values, but you get a sense. One gets a sense in the interview process. So without the values, they're not an A. The kind of people you described are not A's. Some people think that's how some people define A's. So how Morton Mandel defines A's, includes values. They have to be the kind of person I'm going to guess you are. What I'm wondering, the one thing that wasn't on that list is vision. And so I'm wondering what role you see vision as playing in leadership. I don't know that vision is, is one of our criteria. Vision is an, uh, is an output that must come from A's. 
I mean, to be a leader, you must, in my opinion, to be the, the leader I dream about, you must be a conceptual thinker. A conceptual thinker uh, conceives what might be called the vision for the institution. Uh, yeah, if, if, if everything starts with vision. What does the shining city on a hill look like? But I don't have that as a criteria. I have that as an output. And if there is the brain power, if there is the the values, if there is the passion, if there is the work ethic, that person generally is capable of conceiving, developing, and enthusing people and selling people on his or her vision. I was wondering if you had a vision from kind of day one when you started with your two brothers or if it was something that developed as you progressed. August 1, 1940, (laughs) we had this vision. Can we pay our bills at the end of the month? I'm not kidding. (laughs) We started this business because we wanted to get out of poverty. We grew up, uh, if, if I don't confuse you, we grew up in a very rich home. I use that expression all the time. I didn't know how to define rich till I was maybe 40 years old. I thought rich was money. We had no money. We had a wonderful home. Our parents, in my opinion, stood for the best of Western civilization. I know that sounds like an exaggeration. It's not. And we grew up inhaling that. Well, we were poor. Uh, you know, I didn't have all the toys. I had a wonderful life. Don't feel sorry for me. I grew up in a wonderful home. But we didn't have money. And I knew my parents would have been much happier had they had money. Well, they didn't do it. So our job was to have money in the bank. Rich then was all our bills paid, and there's a couple thousand dollars in the bank. My God, you know, we never had that. My parents never had that. So that was our vision. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.